well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? And today, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the Taliban and their transition to being a governing force. We're going to talk about some of the shifting geopolitical realities that we can observe. And we're going to talk about the ending of the Syrian civil war. It hasn't ended yet, but we're going to talk about it as it does end. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid-fire news. So, Pakistan has held a virtual meeting with the Taliban, as the Taliban continues making its envoys um, to reach out to its neighbors and other countries around it to basically establish diplomatic ties. Now, this prob- there was probably also talks during this meeting about the border skirmish that went down. We talked about it last week, where the Taliban shot and killed two Pakistani soldiers in that border skirmish. So that was probably on the agenda list. But it seems that now, um, actually we can take that event and see how this is going down to observe in real time how the Taliban is making the transition from being a purely fighting force to a governing force for the country that they govern over. Because old Taliban would have just shot them and then left it alone. But the Taliban now, after this skirmish, has come to the table to try to resolve this diplomatic incident. Well, I'm sure the meeting wasn't purely about this, but the fact that they're having these sorts of meetings with their neighbors shows us that the Taliban has entered a new phase. And we can... Uh, What more can you say? You can just observe this in real time, and it's very interesting to say the least. Because again, Taliban, two years ago, these Pakistani soldiers shot, and it would never be brought up again. But, as a matter of fact, they never talked again about it. The Pakistanis would hold all the cards. Now... You have a Taliban, who is probably the most well-armed state in the Middle East right now. As of right now, they are probably the most well-armed, most battle-hardened state in the Middle East right now. So, what we look for now is not their ability to fight, but their ability to govern, and their ability to gain popular consent to that governance. We're seeing resistance now because they're effectively being treated as a new government imposed on the people. But we may see that resistance dwindle over time, or at the very least um, become very insignificant. We could see it, and we probably will, now that I mention it. So, very, very interesting, and... Back to the point of them being the most well-armed state in the Middle East right now. 
there's talks of them selling weapons that they got acquired from all the stuff left around from the U.S. withdrawal, which I believe is yet another deliberate move to try to get us back in here, because uh, our troops are still there. They, they, we said that the withdrawal was complete, but we still have thousands of troops there, because they left thousands of citizens there, because they pulled the troops out before the citizens, uh, and they evacuated air bases and didn't tell anybody. So we're in a mess, but now the Taliban has all these toys. So what do they do with them? Well, first and foremost, they're going to use them probably to bolster the ranks of their army. Because now what the Taliban has is a country, not the countryside, not deserts and mountains. Well, they have those, but they're not relegated to deserts and mountains where barely anyone lives. Now they have... A country. They have a population of just under 40 million people now. And there's talks now of all the mineral wealth that sits underneath those mountains that they've been camping out in all this time. And talk of developing it, which, cough, cough, Belt and Road, anybody. The Taliban has a lot of cards right now that they didn't have just uh, six months ago. They have a, a population pool now, uh, lots of young people, which means lots of people that can conscript into their army, and they have all the equipment in the world to train and field that army, and when they are done, I mean, not, not even to mention the experience of the troops who would be doing the training of these people, their commanders, and their chain of command, which will probably be be adapted towards the new form that their military is going to take, they are going to be a monster. They're going to be a monster in a couple years uh, once they've fully integrated themselves into the country again and once they've start exercising the full reins of their power and doing these things that I mentioned. And I can guarantee you that the military aspect of that is going to be uh, top priority, as they're still pretty unstable right now, uh, one, due to the resistance, and two, due to the, they were literally fighting other Afghanis uh, a couple weeks ago, so you gotta establish a base, you gotta establish some trust among the people you were just shooting at, uh, maybe they don't necessarily trust you, but get them to accept the fact that you're in charge now. And that's the task the Taliban has to deal with. But give them two, maybe three years. Uh, these issues won't necessarily be resolved by then. But the Taliban will probably be in a much more sturdy position. And they will really be talking about the Islamic Emirate then. Um, and how they are the most powerful state there. Minus Pakistan, who has nukes. And that's... That, that, that's the kicker. Pakistan has nukes and a much larger population. So, uh, well, actually, both of their neighbors have larger populations than them. But you're talking about the most well-armed state in the Middle East. I There we go. That would be the more accurate. They're, they're going to be the most well-armed state in the Middle East. Because Iran and Pakistan are larger physically, larger demographically in terms of population. 
Iran has about double, Pakistan has almost triple uh, the population of Afghanistan, and both, and Pakistan has nukes, and F. Iran has the tech, they have the technical expertise to acquire a nuke if they, well, when they get around to it, they're, they're trying, but you know, they have an Israel problem, but I don't see any of those neighbors, should things take a really, really bad turn for the worse, I don't see any of those neighbors being able to topple the Afghan regime uh, in any way similar to what the United States did. Uh, and this is the same Taliban. This is the, this is the same governing body, technically speaking, the, the Taliban, who's in charge of Afghanistan. Give them a couple years. I don't see them being toppled by military force again for quite a while. And if so, it'll come from within, not from outside. So, very interesting developments in Afghanistan itself. Uh, and due to the stronger nature of its neighbors, and Russia has superimposed itself onto Afghanistan's entire northern border with Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, uh, Afghanis aren't going to be fighting the Russians again. But the Russians aren't going to be fighting the Afghans again either. They can't fight China. So they're stuck where they are, but it's mutual. They, they can't move out, but no one can move in. That's going to be the situation. And just probably we're going to start seeing that develop in a couple months as they really start to get a grip over their country. And that'll be something to watch out for that we could... The effectively they'll be the they'll either be the Switzerland in terms of uh men with guns in the mountains, or they'll be the Prussia of the Middle East, where you just you just can't beat them. Or I guess Israel would technically take that cake when they. We'll we'll, we'll find some sort of analogy for them, but that is the Taliban, uh, our weekly Taliban update and some things to keep our eyes out for. And as we as we try to take everything as we as, as uh, let me get my English back together as we try to take everything into account that we can, like all those weapons they have, and all that military experience they have from fighting an insurgency for twenty years, and the fact that they have a country now. They're not fighting within the country; they have the country, and it's a, only a matter of time until they consolidate their hold. They. They're not going to have elections. <laughs> but a new emirate has appeared in the Middle East once again. So now, with our daily, well, weekly Taliban update done, we'll move on to the Japanese Prime Minister, Yoshihida Suga, who has declined to seek re-election uh, in the upcoming elections in Japan, uh, sparking a race of multiple candidates from multiple parties to try to fill the gap he's going to be leaving behind. And what this shows me, uh, given the context of where Japan is and the things going on around it, is Japan may just be at a bit of a crossroads right now, where they have to choose. Will they amend relations with China? That's a possibility. Will they double down on United States? That's also a possibility. 
the probably the more likely if I'm being honest uh, there's also the possibility that Japan decides to go its own way and that doesn't mean they'll be going it alone it just means that they'll understand more fully that their foreign policy and the defense of their country are gonna have to be done by them they're gonna have to be more active on both of those fronts and you'll we we've seen them move in that direction for a while now i remember that they amended their constitution so that the whole they can't have offensive war was amended so that they could technically have an offensive war but in the defense of an ally so they can't declare war but they can send troops to aid an ally should their ally be at war which raises the question who are japan's allies and the the answer to that question is whoever the hell the japanese want I, I make the joke the North Koreans could be an ally if the Japanese decided that they were. And all they'd have to do is say that the North Koreans were their ally. And boom, you have Japanese troops in North Korea for whatever reason. Assuming the North Koreans were okay with that. But um, major, major loophole that has been added to this constitution... Um, but more likely, it'll be applied for countries like, uh, I wouldn't say South Korea, unless things got really, really bad. And there was a whole blitz, a Sino-North Korean blitzkrieg across the DMZ into South Korea. Then I would see them sending troops to aid South Korea. South Korea and Japan don't really like each other. So I more act, I more likely see the Japanese utilizing that loophole in their constitution that they've created to send troops to Taiwan and naval assets to Taiwan in the event that China makes their move, which uh, I'm of the firm belief that the Chinese will make their move when they feel that they are ready. It'll be loud. It'll be fast. It'll be stunning. And as far as I can gauge right now, it's not going to be stopped. Can't be stopped, uh, and I use can't in the context of the Chinese will use every trick in the book to muddy the waters, uh, to buy them time to take the island. They'll you they will use civilians. They will use um, they will use all dirty tricks. They'll use their navy. They'll use overwhelming air superiority. They will bomb kids. The they will send in the dogs. They'll send their envoys out and say, we actually just want peace. Please, um, uh, please, if you, if you would talk with me for about, uh, let's see, 48 hours. Does 48, does 48 hours sound good to you? How about we talk for 48 hours, you know, just, just you and me. They'll do it. They'll do everything they can. It'll be like the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor where they just evaded. They went radio silent. They evaded all detection. Um, they were negotiating with the Americans on how to resolve the tensions right up until they bombed the harbor. The Chinese will probably do the same, except they will have to cross a much shorter distance, which means they can bring many more assets to bear. 
Taiwan will fall to China. Right. It's just a matter of how difficult can the Taiwanese and their neighbors and potentially the United States, that's the direction. It seems like people are desperate for us to head in. But the question isn't whether or not we can defend Taiwan. It's how difficult can we make taking Taiwan for China? How difficult can we make it? How high can we make the price? The Chinese are going to pay the price regardless. But how high can we make the price? That's the question. And that's the way you got to look at it from a realistic point of view. Because, like I said, if this was Cuba and the United States, no one would question whether or not the United States could take Cuba if it really wanted to. So we apply that same logic with China, who now has a massive navy that is still getting larger. Taiwan will fall, but we're talking about Japan. Uh, and I guess all that context does help when I say Japan is at a crossroads, because these are the things the new prime minister is going to have to deal with, um, potentially. We don't know when China is going to make the move for Taiwan. Uh, we just know that they'll do it when they feel that they're ready. When, will, when are they going to be ready? Who knows? It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. But it's something that's going to be looming over every Japanese prime minister before, during, and after it happens. So this is just one of the things that the new prime minister, whoever he, or potentially she, I'm pretty sure I saw some female candidates up there, whoever they may be, they're, gonna have, they're likely going to have to deal with this, or at the very least the lead up to the impending Taiwan crisis, they're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to deal with the reality that Russia and China are on track to become formal allies. And they're going to have to deal with the reality that those, those two are all already allies in all but name. They're going to have to deal with that reality. They're going to have to deal with the reality that they're probably not going to be able to handle that monstrosity on their own whether that's China by itself Russia by itself or God forbid they end up in a situation where they have to deal with China and Russia simultaneously in a not so friendly manner and by that I mean a shooting manner they're gonna have to contend with that reality and they're gonna have to contend with the consistent reality that the Koreans don't like them and they'll probably side with North Korea. The South Koreans will probably side with North Korea before they side with Japan because they really don't like them. What would that mean for the, the Korean Peninsula? Um, it would mean a hyper entity that could probably defend itself even from China, at least for a while. We're talking the North Korean army with South Korean tech. Oh my goodness. That's a monster. And a competitor to Japan. The South Koreans and the North Koreans are talking, people. They're talking. I see a Korean confederation in the works. Uh, some sort of practical unification that may lead to something more formal in the future. But these are things the new Japanese prime minister is going to have to look at and potentially deal with. Because we know... That the world is changing, I say it, but it's true. The world is changing, it's constantly changing, and borders don't stay the same forever. Uh, you can look at Korea 
uh, from 1900 to 2000. Look at how much just the Korean Peninsula changed over that 100-year time span. They were independent, then they, they were independent, they were basically a Chinese protectorate, then the Japanese stepped in. Um, then the World War II happened, and it got split. Then there was a war between the two split parts, and the border moved even more. Uh, all the way down to the Busan, all the way up to the Korean North Korean border with China, and then back down to the 38th parallel, I think it is. Either the 38th or the 39th. And it looked slightly different. All that happened in the span of 100 years. It's reasonable to assume that it'll change again. It's reasonable to assume that the Chinese, will, who are taking a more active role in international politics, are going to expand. I talked about Chinese colonialism and their potential to be the colonial power of the 21st century. Probably for a century at least. Uh, I'd give them. I'd give them that much. Uh, it'll be rough. The demographic issue is a time bomb. It's gonna hit everybody, but because it's gonna hit everybody, it means the relative power balance might not change that much. We talk about the relative power of nations. If everybody's falling at roughly the same rate, then guess what? Your position next to the other guy who's falling with you doesn't change much. Uh, so that's something to take into account as well when we talk about those demographics and the impending inversion of demographics which the Japanese are already dealing with right now and it's not exactly going to get better for them right now the Japanese Prime Minister is going to have to deal with that as well and potentially even a shrinking economy not just a stagnant economy but a shrinking economy because japan depends on exports and trade um, for its economy as it stands right now primarily through digital and automobile um, but what happens when the countries you're selling those goods and services to themselves have demographic inversions and can't purchase your stuff as much you're gonna get a shrinking economy and the only way you're gonna amend that because there's not enough young people to buy it at home is you're gonna to need to go find young people abroad to buy your shit Africa is on the menu and it will remain so for the rest of our lives Africa is on the menu. It's already being carved up. We'll see what the final result looks like. Um, but I don't see... I don't see Japan just sitting idly by while these things happen. Uh, I talked about the three options they had. They go with China, they go with America, they go their own way. Uh, there's technically a fourth option, which is that they... Um, they pull back and sort of go into the isolation that they were in during the 1800s prior to America showing up at their doorstep and the Europeans. But um, that's the lesser option that I feel. It's there, but I don't feel that the 
economic and demographic pressures are going to push them in that direction. It would take, it's more likely that they'll try to pull a China and grab some colonies in Africa. I mean, they have the Navy to do it. They have friends. I mean, if need be, the Japanese Navy could sail all the way around Indonesia uh, to a port in Australia, sail along the Australian coastline, and then sail all the way up around Indonesia the other way to get to India's islands on the Andaman, which sits right on the outside of the Malacca Straits. Maybe there's a new port there, or at the very least, it's used as a landmark, and then the Japanese Navy goes to a port in India, and then they can go along the Indian coastline until they feel safe to make the leap to Africa itself. The Japanese have enough friendly ports to do so because their navy has a greater range. Um, they can go farther without needing a port. The Chinese navy doesn't have the luxury of that range, but they have more friendly ports, courtesy of the, uh, the String of Pearls. So both of them have the potential to get there. China's already there. Will Japan make that move too? India doesn't need to, but they they might just out of competition. Although I think that would be them overstretching a bit, because they have to compete in the Himalayas, uh, in the Middle East. They're gonna have to compete in Southeast Asia, and Indochina, much much more closer to home are India's primary fields of competition with China. So I don't necessarily see them playing around in Africa when. The Chinese are pressing them effectively at their border. So India, I don't see, even though they would have the capability to get to Africa, they're way closer to Africa than China or Japan. I don't see them going. They don't have the economic necessity. They have lots of young people at home. They have a billion and a half people on their own. Their internal market will grow and they just won't need it. So more pressing will be strategic security of their borders so while people lament that india is not a a maritime empire they don't necessarily need to be due to the geography around them they need their army and i feel that they will double down on land so japan does have one thing going for it they have that alliance with India, 10-year military pact, India's army, Japan's navy, and in the direction I see them more likely going, um, which is either doubling down on the United States or going their own way, those are the, uh, those are the two more likely options, um, either way they go, they're still going to strengthen their navy because they've taken steps to do so. They converted helicopter carriers to being able to carry F-35s. That is an offensive move, not a defensive move. They did that. They have a really good navy. They have Australia. Uh, behind, uh, they have Australia as the wind in their sails, and they have India as a friendly port. They have a way around China, so that is something that they do have going for them. And that the new prime minister can count on. Because India and Australia aren't going to be amending relations with China anytime soon. Now, should Japan amend relations with China, then those two will effectively 
go closer to being out the door. Uh, certainly the confidence in that military pact with India will go out the door. But again, I don't see them taking that step. They've taken many more steps in the other directions. Um, but it's there, just not likely. So while Japan is going to have to deal with the Cold War between China and India and its expansion as China's inverted demographics force it to make more overt moves to secure its economy and as India grows stronger, uh, ju not just in relative terms to the shrinking Chinese demography, but uh, also as India industrializes more. India will become stronger and China will become weaker uh, in a sense that I, I brought up that they can lean on Africa to sort of counterbalance that and effectively make every citizen richer, uh, will make themselves richer per capita as they lose people, which will turn them into a, effectively a United States of Asia. Well, U.S. in Asia, uh, just with very, very different values, but probably a similar population by 2100. And if they can keep it together, probably similar wealth and economy by 2100. We're talking really, really far away. But these are the things that J the Japanese prime minister may have to look at because the route to that is probably going to involve Japan in some way, or shape, or form. Japan has lots of issues uh, formulating around it that the next prime minister, or the prime minister after that, or the prime minister after that are going to have to deal with. We don't know when. We just know that these issues are there. Meaning, whoever wins this election is going to have to deal with these they're going to have to deal with these as being the realities, the facts on the ground, around them. And whether or not they do anything about them, they're going to have to take into account that these things are going on. And so, Japan is most definitely at a crossroads. Um, and we'll see where they go. Uh, my, my bets are on they'll either double down on, UI, on the U.S. or they'll go their own way. And after the Afghanistan debacle... They're probably, uh, there's probably more people leaning towards going their own way, but they might try to double down on U.S. But post-Taiwan, however, we might see Japan really go definitively in its own way. So, that's something we can also look out for. But, we'll leave Japan there. We talked about the U.S. a minute ago, and... The U.S. Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, he has gone to Qatar, uh, a, the diplomatic capital of the Middle East, in an attempt to engage in damage control regarding U.S. international standing. I brought up the Afghan debacle and how it could, def it, ha it has already uh, sent shockwaves that have made other countries go, maybe we shouldn't depend on the United States so much. Maybe it's a good idea to sort of reassess our options. Definitely Japan. Definitely Japan. Japan might still have more faith than a lot of other countries. 
But major, major shockwave, major, major catastrophe with regards to international standing and prestige, which he's trying to amend. There's this scramble trying to re- of people trying to reassure the allies that we're going to be there, we're going to be there, we're going to defend you, we're not going to leave you behind like we did Afghanistan. Uh, some of them are going, okay, a lot of them aren't but really buying it, but they're saying, okay, anyway. It's a mess. Uh, and I, I keep saying it, but we're, we're really, we're in some uh, pretty rough straits right now. And given my own political affiliations, I just sit back and watch it, you know, because... I'm not overly invested in whether or not we're allied with Afghanistan. I'm I'm not overly invested in who wins Afghanistan's civil war. Um because their civil war not ours and we don't have a place there. So, I'm just here watching everyone else obsess about someone else's civil war. It's very interesting, you know. I'll I'll just say that it's a very interesting experience. You should try it sometime. <laughs> but um, he's gone. Blinken has gone to Qatar. Qatar becomes more important with regards to diplomacy in the region by the second, and that was another development we can observe in real time: the growing importance of Qatar as the diplomatic capital of the Middle East. I joked about it, but it's true. That that's what they're becoming, and it's very interesting to see this new order descending onto the Middle East, and there's even one more big one happening, and we'll talk about that in a minute. That being the end of the Syrian civil war. So, lots of changes that are really really shaking up how the Middle East is looking. Uh, we used to look at it with content. We didn't want to. We didn't even want to pay attention, or at the very least, I know I didn't. Now I can't stop looking, and for better reasons than before, you know, before Afghanistan. But even with Afghanistan, it's still become very, very interesting to watch. Um, speaking of countries in the Middle East, the son of Muammar Gaddafi was recently released from prison by the Libyan government. Um, so, yeah, he's out, it's, I, I sort of draw parallels to this and the other story we covered, where the son of the Soviet resistance leader in Afghanistan during the Soviet-Afghan war, his son was released from prison too, uh, wait, no, 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 his son wasn't released from prison, his son vowed defiance against the Taliban, is what happened, but sort of similar things going down, uh, well, at the very least, that's what it reminded me of. I don't know if they're similar, but it's what it reminded me of, and I felt like including it in the episode. So, there's that. Meanwhile, in Yemen, the Houthis have claimed an attack on Saudi Arabia's Aramco. And for those who do not know, Aramco is a massive state-owned oil company uh, owned by Arabia. Uh, So, really, really huge, and it's been attacked by the Houthis as... Arabia has lost the war against the Houthis, but the Houthis haven't accepted peace. They've woken up and chosen violence, and Arabia's largest oil company is paying the price. Is it going to cripple Aramco? Probably not. Not even close. It's We're talking really, really huge quantities of oil and really huge capabilities and capacity 
for processing and moving and refining oil. But the war has been brought to Arabia. And that is definitely a change that's going to keep them preoccupied while things are going down around them. Uh, which I guess puts them sort of in the same boat as Israel right now and Syria, where they're preoccupied with issues at home and they can't stop things around them because of that. They can't put their full weight behind uh, outsiders because they're too focused inside. Uh, we'll see if that is how things develop for Arabia or if this is just going to be a one-off attack. But uh, the Houthis are on the move. And we may see them take over Yemen itself. And that'll be a nightmare for Arabia. Having an Iranian ally on your southern border. Oh my goodness. And we're talking the exact opposite direction from where Iran itself is at. That is an axis uh, not to be not not to compare it to the World War II, the Axis, but a problem where you have two separate fronts you're going to have to deal with or worry about in the event that you have to fight one or the other. Very very different circumstances are arising in this region. Uh, and speaking of Iran, the Grand Ayatollah Al Hakim has died recently. Uh, and for those who wonder why this is uh, important, essentially think of the Pope. Uh, the Pope. Imagine if the Pope had died. Now imagine that it, instead of the Pope, it was the Pope for Shia Islam. <laughs> so imagine that. That's the sort of level of a figure we're talking about here when we talk about this Grand Ayatollah. He has died, and Shia Islam is mourning his death. So we major political figure has died, and what can you say? Meanwhile, with political figures, the Guatemalan president has been probed. He's being probed now on charges of bribery. Uh, so, more presidents having political issues. There's heavy raining in Spain, which has really given them a hard time. Not as hard as Germany or the Netherlands, where they had whole floods, but uh, we could see some in Spain. Mexico, meanwhile, wants more work visas for its migrant workers to the U.S. And last but not least, Malaysia has unbanned the Boeing 737 MAX. There was a issue of it crashing a lot back in its uh, early days so it got banned a lot but now it's being unbanned as I believe they've worked out enough of the kinks to where it doesn't crash and you know that's always that's always a good sign for a plane that it doesn't crash you know I mean I don't know but I don't know about you but I appreciate it when my flights don't crash while I'm in them you know I mean you could be different <laughs> but that's it for the rapid-fire news, and we'll get into the segment that I have, because uh, the news cycle's really been eaten up by other things that we've talked about, and without major new developments for me to go over, but we're going to get into the meat in just a moment. Alright, um, I apparently misplaced these. These are also part of the rapid-fire news, and we'll go over them really quick. 
Uh, Hurricane Ida is being quite a pain for the South. It'll probably just, I'll probably just get rain up where I am. Uh, the U.S. Biden administration is currently seeking to move the embassy uh, in Israel from Jerusalem to a different city. Uh, it was moved to Jerusalem under the Trump administration, so now he's seeking to move it again. Uh, and the United States is also seeking to build border facilities on the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Uh, this is not going to go over well for the administration, especially with a certain half of the country who was pro-wall on the southern border. And last but not least, Nigeria has imposed national bedtimes to help stop uh, child kidnappings. So, wow. But uh, now that we've gotten through the rapid-fire news... Uh, for real this time, we can get into the meat of the segment, which is that I believe we are in the final days of the Syrian Civil War. Now, like I said before, the news cycle is a bit dry. Uh, and by dry, I mean there's nothing really new that I can talk about. Uh, and what there is, I've talked about before and there's not enough new about those subjects for me to justify going over them again uh at least for the time being so i have to scrounge together what i can and i have found this i found this it's pretty interesting so uh let's let's get into it on friday an agreement over the fate of dira al-balad a city in southern Syria, which was held by the rebels, um, it broke down. The agreement, uh, which was reached on Tuesday, was meant to transfer control of the state over to the Syrian government. And it was meant to disarm the rebel fighters in exchange for the fighters and the civilians not being uh, shelled, shot, and starved. The city was actually already under siege and actively being shelled, shot, and starved prior to this agreement being hashed out. However, the rebel leaders rejected certain parts of the deal, such as how much control would be given to the Syrian army, the extent to which the rebels would be disarmed, the invasiveness of the army's occupation of the city, and that is that they were going to put checkpoints all throughout the residential neighborhoods and whatnot. Uh, really, a whole bunch of places throughout the city really put it on lockdown, like hardcore lockdown. Uh, yeah, and they were also going to do door-to-door searches uh, to see if you are housing a rebel soldier in your house so that they could properly disarm him and arrest him. So... Obviously, the rebels uh, had reservations about that. Um, and another thing that the agreement had in it that was attempted to re be reached was that Russian military police would have been setting up perimeters. Uh, well, a perimeter. They would have set up a perimeter around the city to counter the Iranian militias who were also a major part of the besieging force. Now, 
the rebels within the city said no to these conditions uh, for pretty clear reasons. Um, they said no to the conditions of their surrender, and the deal fell apart on Friday. And now they're being, well, shelled, shot, and starved. Now, this story is eventful on its own, but it does highlight a good number of developments uh, that I would have and covered and I would like to go over, and a good number of developments that sort of highlight what I mean when I say a new order is descending on the Middle East. So, the first and most obvious thing that I've observed from this situation is that the Syrian government is well and truly on their way towards putting the country back together, uh, which will mean the end of yet another conflict in the Middle East. We saw the end of the war between the Taliban, or the Islamic Emirate, I should say, of Afghanistan, and the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. That civil war ended in the Emirates' victory. We've seen conflict break out between Israel and Palestine, but we're also witnessing the ending, probably, of the Yemen, the civil war in Yemen. That, that remains to be seen, though, you know, but I think it's coming to a close. I don't have as much of an insight on that one as I do with these other conflicts. But we're, we've seen the end of that. Um, we've seen the end of Israel's effective ability to, you know, do the, the sorts of precise strikes on Iran that they were able to do before they were bogged down with the fighting in Palestine. Now their attention is being drawn decidedly elsewhere right now for the obvious reason that the Palestinians are inside of Israel. But two major developments. We've seen the U.S. start really pulling out, which is leaving the Middle East to assert a new order on its own. And I would say probably a more natural one. We're seeing Iran really, really emerge as this dominant power here in the Middle East, a new Persia. And that's that's number one. All right. And we're going to see the end of the Syrians of a war, and it will be yet another side. It'll be yet another victory technical for the Iranians who have backed the winning side. Um, and it'll definitely earn them a friend. But this end of this conflict means more stability. The end of these conflicts means stability. Every time a war ends in the Middle East, you're going to get stability, which means you're going to get governance and probably development, probably cooperation, maybe war between two, you know, fully coordinated states. Um, but you're going to get stability. You're going to get greater sense of stability, which is probably going to bring with it a number of benefits that we probably didn't expect we could ever see out of the Middle East. And we'll see how things develop moving forward. But that's sort of the main theme that we should focus on as these conflicts come to a close. These forever wars, I should say, Afghanistan closes. Um, the Taliban's in control. There's no, there's no more cocaine coming out of Afghanistan. They shut the poppy fields down. 
Syrian civil war coming to a close. Probably going to be very crucial in Russia's anchor in the Middle East. Having an ally there that they can basically pivot to any other direction in the Middle East should they feel it necessary. I don't think they'll feel it necessary for quite some time. They have other issues to attend to. But Syria's existence, uh, under the leadership of the Syrian government, Assad's government, means Russia and Iran have a stronger force and presence in the Middle East. Um, So there's that. Which I guess I'll segue into the second uh, development from this situation, which is that uh, which is we can observe the boldness of Russian troops operating beyond their country's borders. Now, we've watched the Russian troops all over. We've watched them over all of last year. Uh, inserting themselves into various situations, really, really pushing Russia's horizons further outwards. We saw them in the Caucasus uh, during the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, before I even had my podcast, we were able to observe them in Ukraine, where they just walked into Crimea and just walked into the Donbass to prop up the republics that had seceded from Ukraine. And because Russia's there, Ukraine can't do anything about it. So Ukraine's just stuck. Ukraine is in a very, very unenviable situation right now because Russia has effectively uh, checked them. And by that, I mean they've checkmated them. There's nothing they can do. They they just lose. That's that's where Ukraine is at right now. So uh, F in the chat for Ukraine uh, one of these days. But um, we've seen Russia get more bold. We saw them in the Caucasus, Ukraine. And even before Ukraine, they had a war with Georgia that they won. And now Georgia was the first of the Caucasus states to be put under effective Russian uh, hold. To be put under an effective Russian hold. Uh, so the first acquisition. Uh, the under, <laughs> Trying to get my words together. Georgia ended up being the first of the unofficial Russian republics to be integrated into Russia. Greater Russia, I should say. With Armenia and Azerbaijan willingly going along and becoming the second and third unofficial Russian republics in the Caucasus with Lugansk and Donbass in what I mean Lugansk and Donetsk in Ukraine being the other two unofficial Russian republics Russia straight up took Crimea that one didn't get to uh, republic status but we've seen Russian troops push out their horizons, and more recently, we've seen them just walk, just walk straight through Central Asia, right up onto their old borders that they had, where Russia used to own all of that nice, thick desert and steppe between Russia's borders on the maps that you see, and the Afghan-Iranian border. Effectively, Russia's borders have been pushed out to where they used to be in all these locations, the Caucasus and Central Asia, but maps aren't quite as accurate as they could be to portray that. 
because Russia's troops are there. You, you're not going to be able to get in or out of any of these countries in the Caucasus or Central Asia without the Russians knowing and giving express okay for you to do so. Now, what do you call it when another country imposes their controls over your border? Well, you call that being annexed. <laughs> so they've effectively annexed all of Central Asia now. Uh, through the dual-pronged effort of the CSTO and joint border control in light of the Afghan refugee crisis. Uh, coming to a western city near you. So, we've seen the Russian troops get bolder and bolder in their operational capabilities beyond Russia's borders. Well, I guess as they've extended Russia's de facto borders further out, we've seen them do this uh, with stunning success. I gotta keep saying it, very stunning success, pushing Russia's horizons out further. But let's also look at who those Russian troops uh, had agreed to protect the rebels from in this situation in Syria. Because remember, the Russian troops in Syria wanted to set up a perimeter to keep out a, a certain group of people. Who were those people? They were Iranian militias, which leads us to development number three. Syria is a core part of the Iranian sphere of influence, which I guess just means Syria has some really, they have some really, really powerful and really, really helpful friends. I mean, and those friends are cooperative with one another, not combative. So they're not tearing Syria apart by being involved in Syria. They're helping Syria. Even when they disagree with each other on whether or not one of them should be occupying a city. Even in that situation, you have still Russia and Iran working together to help Syria. That's what you call allies. That's what you call being a part of a sphere of influence. Now, as far as Russia's involvement here... I would say it's more of the Russians guarantee Syria's independence because it's helpful for Russia that Syria be an independent state. And Iran also serves the same purpose, but with greater perks. Uh, I mean, really, really think about it. Think about it. Iranian militias moving through Syrian land, unopposed by the Syrian government, and they're moving through to fight and put down a rebellion against the Syrian government by, it was perpetrated by, other Syrians. And the Iranian militias are coming in, putting down this rebellion in order to maintain a pro-Iranian and pro-Russian government in Syria really digest that i mean folks folks that's one step down from the iranian army marching in and doing this instead of militias now if the iranian army was doing that we'd all see very clearly oh 
oh, Syria is effectively a part of Iran. Oh, wow. They're a part of Iran's sphere of influence. They, the Iranians can just do that? Oh, oh wow. But because all, all these situations are a step down from historical norm, be it from colonization, mercantilism, expansionism, uh, militarism, and even spheres of influence now, because all of what we see is a step down and a watered down version of what we would have seen just, what, a hundred and something years ago? It's harder to see if you're not looking at it through the proper lens. And I guess that's a bit of hubris of me to say that I'm looking at it through the proper lens. But really, just think about what I've, what I've explained to you. Iranian militias moving through Syrian land, unopposed by the Syrian government, to fight and put down a rebellion of other Syrians to maintain the pro-Iranian government in Syria. I mean, it's there. It's, it's right there. It's right in front of us. So, I mean, I saw it. It's there. I saw it before this happened. So clearly I'm I'm doing something right, you know. I'm just doing something right, you know. <laughs> but honestly, honestly. What what else could you call that other than being a part of someone else's sphere of influence? It's very very interesting to say the least. Now, the elephant in the room here is that the influence Iran has in Syria is curbed uh, greatly by, and it's even restricted by, the Russian presence. But again, uh, I see it as more being Russia guaranteeing Syria's independence rather than Russia just having free reign over Syria like Iran is closer to having at this point. So, um, whilst Russia's presence hinders and weakens Iran's influence in Syria just by giving Syria options in who it kisses up to, uh, Russia's presence does not do this to the point of Iran being locked out. Instead, as I also mentioned, it's more of a cooperative uh, overlapping of interests because both of the Russians and the Syrians, I mean, both the Russians and the Iranians, even with their differences in how they believe things should go down, uh, right up to the tactical and field battle level, they're still unified in the principle that you, we're going to help Syria. We're going to help Syria. We may disagree on how exactly we're going to help Syria, but we're in Syria. We're going to help Syria, and Syria is going to be uh, not governed by someone who opposes us. So on that front, they're unified, and they're more than willing to cooperate, and they do. So this is a cooperative overlapping of interests. Whew. And all of this really lays out a picture. A picture that is forming. It's sort of like back in the old-timey old, old days, back in the 1800s when they first invented the camera, where you'd take the picture, and you'd have to take it to like a dark room to develop it. You have to take it to the dark room so it could develop. Uh, and it would take a while. 
back in the day, it would take a, a while for these pictures to be exposed and develop so that you could see them. But bit by bit, it becomes clearer and clearer until you can see it. And what we're starting to see is this new order that is descending on the Middle East. And it is being developed and exposed right before our very eyes. And with it, as it settles into whatever it's going to be, I see at least a few years of relative peace coming to this very violent section of the world. And that's good for everybody. Um, yeah. What can you say? Uh, I know what I'll say. That is all I have for today. But I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We are observing the world changing in ways we didn't expect, but we also get to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.